Hello, you're listening to Talking Life brought to you by Created Out of Mind at Welcome. Created Out of Mind is a hub of people experiencing a dementia, scientists, artists, researchers to come together to explore, challenge and shape perceptions and understandings of dementias, we hope. I'm Susanna Howard and this music is by Hannah Peel. Talking Life is mainly a place for conversations between me and people experiencing a dementia to discuss universal topics. In this podcast, I went to Norwich to speak with Caroline Kitkat. You may notice a bit of background noise. It was summer when we recorded, but the rain was quite something. The conversation that Caroline Kitkat and I are about to have today is slightly different from most of the other conversations in this Talking Life series, in that... Caroline looked after her mother, Audrey, who um, lived with the dementia and um, passed away. March 2015. March 2015. And we're going to be talking about connection. How are you feeling about life at the moment? Um, A lot better than I was, mainly because I was very exhausted. Um, But I'm not nearly so exhausted now and so now I don't get so easily overwhelmed but but exhaustion and just emotional overwhelm was the theme I think of the last well more than two years probably um and it takes time to get over yeah and I think for transparency for people listening to this conversation we ought to just say that you and I know each other because Mm -hmm. for um the last six months or year no year about a year yeah um of audrey's life i would come up to norwich and to the nursing home where she was living and, and spend time working with her and, hmm. yeah you very much had a connection with audrey right up until the end of her life yes and, and i think it's something that often looks from the outside as if it can't happen and sometimes people experience that they are disconnected from someone living with dementia. And I don't know if what happened between me and Audrey is representative. Um, I don't know if other people could respond in that way. I, I rather think that they could. Um, mm. But of course I went into it with a, a particular professional background as well, which I think helped. And do you want to just say a bit about that? Yeah, so I'm a trained person-centred therapist and I think in the true sense of person-centredness it is about building a relationship and entering into the other person's frame of reference in a as-if kind of way to try and make sense of how they're experiencing the world and being able to do that without losing your sense of yourself um, and being able to do that in in a way that um, fosters growth. I do actually believe that both of us grew through that Mm. experience and through being able to maintain a connection right up until the very end. You said about the externals um, and when I first first met your mum... Yes, people could easily think that, oh, there's a person who's in pain who you can't reach because she was um, 
um, not able to move her. Well, do you want to say how she was? In well, the she, she couldn't, she, she had no mobility. Um, and I think by the time you met her, she needed assistance with everything. But she could still speak. Mm. She responded very well to having the attention of a person. So when she was with you, it made a very significant difference, I could tell, um, when I would come from work to see her when she'd spent time with you compared with when she'd been left on her own, in her chair or in her bed. Um, Nobody was being proactive with her and... She would get quite frustrated, I think, with that. Hmm. There were some quite difficult times in the early days, but everybody kept telling me, because she would fly through the memory test with no problems, that she didn't have dementia. And she flew through that memory test, and consequently we were being told not dementia, until she couldn't do it at all. I didn't know what to do. Um, but what I did feel all the time was I need to try and understand what's going on here. Did you ever receive a specific diagnosis for Audrey? About four months, four or five months before she died, I asked for a CT scan um, because I felt that if I could understand exactly what type of dementia we were dealing with or if it was dementia that might help and if there might be any kind of way of helping with it of course um and they couldn't do an mri scan because she had a pacemaker so they did a ct scan and that did show vascular dementia so she had to use a hoist and i just made it into a flying game and my mother was quite adventurous anyway in her life she liked new things so I just made it into a game that she was flying and she was like Peter Pan and she laughed her head off. She thought it was wonderful. And then we never, ever had any problem with the hoist ever again. Now, I think I would be terrified in the hoist, but she had no problem. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, for people who are listening, so I don't know if everyone can picture what a hoist is. And, and then certainly I think the first time that you see them, within the sort of, within the nursing home setting they are a bit shocking because yeah. although they're sort of made with nice color fabrics and uh, uh you know and sort of soft edges of um they're still a rather sort of barbaric looking construction and hmm. um and it takes a couple of people to get the person in so yes. um i think with or without dementia one would see that and feel like it was a complete taking away of any sort of personal agency or yes. yeah and, and i mean it requires a lot of care and skill to move somebody in a hoist and it is yeah. there are there are risks to it and i showed the carers how to make things into a game and if they made things into a game she would usually play along with it not a hundred percent all the time because if she wasn't going to do something she wasn't going to do it and she did by that way have her agency Singing was another thing that always helped get things done. The other thing, of course, was that she um, was registered blind with macular degeneration because it it didn't look as if she was. 
and she was quite good at giving an impression of being able to see things. But she could see enough. I mean, she knew who you were and she didn't remember your name, but she would call you the dark one. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. I yeah. like that. Yeah, that sounds like a superhero name, wasn't it? <laughs> the dark one. The dark one. Probably, yeah. Presumably, because what she mainly saw was your dark hair. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, but she definitely knew who, who you were. And, and if I said, um, Susanna's coming, she's the dark one, she would know who it was. I would keep a running commentary, a very slow one. Yeah. Um, but, you know, now now they're going to put you in the hoist and you've got whoever they were with you doing it, you know, the carers. I don't, again, I, I mean, she knew, the carers were familiar, but I don't think she remembered anybody's names. Um, but it was just to make sure that nothing was unexpected. Now that some of the nurses in that nursing home didn't follow that and there was one in particular who was always awful and so if she was giving my mother medication she would just go you know come on open your mouth and whatever and and then of course my mother would grab the hand or grab the hair and would Mm. be frightened she would be frightened because she didn't know what was going on and so she was dealing with not only dementia which she would describe as a fog but also not being able to see properly she would listen to tone of voice and I used often use the same words yes I remember that there were certain I remember you say, saying to me there were certain words that you knew that your mum that were very characteristic of yeah. her her use of language and you used yes. those as a connector that's right well I knew her I knew her language and I knew the language that she had used with my father so and I suppose I knew also our family, kind of the words that we used in our family. So I would use those um, with her. And, I, and, and that's part of also entering into somebody's frame of reference. Having that knowledge of her over a lifetime, she would talk about the house that she sold. I think people are better in their own homes if they can be. In the end, of course, she couldn't have very much stuff with her at all. So she lost a lot of context by that yeah it makes me think of a woman saying to me there's nothing in this room to tell me who I am is there I wonder if your relationship to language changed at all during that period I'm I'm aware that my and something I'm interested in at the moment is my way of speaking has changed significantly over the last 10 years and I think it's something and it's to do with how I use words in connecting with people when I'm working with them and that's come out into my life now and even with these podcasts I'll listen back to recordings and I'll think what on earth am I saying because actually it really is it really is in that space between mm. you know and trying to find those characters did you did you do you think that had any impact on you um it's very hard to disentangle for me what what I knew from my training and my work uh-huh. which obviously I've been doing for 20 years and and what particularly came out of that period of time with my mother is I think that with her, I I would talk very slowly and I would leave a lot of space. I would, I would wait for her to have time to take in what I'd said or to think what she wanted to say. It was a more exaggerated form, I suppose, if you like, of what I would do normally. But I'm not. I wasn't trying to be her therapist. I was more trying to have a conversation. 
over the years I've been witness to so many people who are unable to find a way to put things aside to have that connection with mm-hmm. their loved one seeing it so clearly with you like totally being totally being with how your how Audrey was at the time that you were with her yeah and there didn't seem to be anything that was there wasn't overtly anything lacking or missing it was who you both were hmm. right in that moment well I I was pleased that we did manage to achieve that because there was and I think I, I do think people find it very difficult to put aside a history oh, that's gosh, been very yes. difficult. Yeah. And mothers and daughters particularly have Absolutely. quite challenging times. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and we did. Um, <laughs> so, so, what I felt was important was to come to it as me um, to see what we could actually achieve in that relationship and whether that would actually help her in what I knew was going to be a very difficult process. Can you understand it at all when people say, oh, they're not there? Well, I don't know whether... I mean, obviously, that's their experience, isn't mm, it? Mm. I didn't feel that my mother wasn't there, ever. Um, I always felt that she was herself. And it, and it, my sense of being with her was very similar, um, always. So, I mean, she wasn't always speaking and she wasn't always awake that it is possible to maintain connection mm. and that uh, and to try and understand I think that I mean to me there's a lot of misunderstanding about what happens in the person's head and I think when people say they're not there I would want to know what they meant by that mm. but I also know because I've obviously had clients who've had these situations to deal with that a lot of people just never manage to get their heads around. They want that they can't adjust to the person where they are. They want the person to be who they were before, and I think they are that person, but with parts of their brain not working very well. Fundamentally, it's not possible to be a different person to who <laughs> you are. It just isn't. You can't lose a person. They're obviously still going to be there. I mean, I think anxiety and fear is a big part of what goes on. Yes, and if the person can feel reassured and connected and that they're not on their own in it that's that makes a massive difference and that they're accepted as they are where they are she is where she is i can't make her be anywhere else um and i need to be with her where she is and i need to try and understand and if i can't understand it i just need to accept that that she is doing her best at all times to be whatever it is in the moment that she feels I think she was trying to grow all the time um, and she she wanted to she certainly wasn't ready to die when she died she 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 told me a week before she died that she was keeping on keeping on by then she lost the coordination for swallowing and that for her I think was re- she she definitely tried to overcome it as best she could so I've heard people say, oh, well, they just, you know, they just push it around their mouth, they just play with their food or they spit it out. And that's not what was happening. She was trying her best to eat and swallow. As time went on and she got more towards the end of her life, the stories that she remembered and I could tell her and she would know and the songs 
were the stories of not necessarily her childhood, but ones that she'd read to us as children or sang to us as children. And although some of the songs I'd never heard before and definitely came from her childhood. Um, but And that was interesting. And I don't think it's because they were for children. I think it was more that they were simple and familiar. Yeah. And again, those those were things that would, if she was having physio or something like that, which obviously was quite painful and difficult, and we couldn't always do it, but mostly we could. And um, we would we would sing, and she would relax. She would laugh. She would think it was terribly funny. I mean, and I think she thought it was funny because she was an adult listening to a yes a, a song. Um, a I think that song. yeah, I think that's a really. Uh... I think that's an important point and I've experienced that a lot with people that I've been working with even sometimes when we'll be in the process and I might be reading some words back to the person and and that that feeling that, that sort of lucidity of I can totally see yeah. what's going on here Absolutely. but at the same time it's making me feel good yeah and it's also I mean in terms of my mother and I it's also reliving a shared experience in the way that she could relate to so if I'd said to her do you remember when you used to read Peter Rabbit to me she probably wouldn't remember it yeah but if I read her Peter Rabbit and she knows it and um, then she will remember that she, she used to read it to me I think from for me if I want to take anything out of my experience with her it is just to try and offer what I learned to other people who might be in a similar position who might find it useful. Did you find that there was any support? It was easy to find support or...? No. Mm. Interestingly, where I found out a lot of helpful information was on Twitter, which is not... I don't spend much time on Twitter now, but at that time there were quite a lot of people living with dementia who were talking about how they experienced it. And that's what I found interesting, and people who who had blogs, so people like Kate Swaffer, yeah, absolutely brilliant for me at that particular time to just listen, because what I wanted to try and understand was, from the perspective of somebody living with dementia, how do they perceive, and what do they think is important, and from that came a lot of information about the language, what's actually happening, how you might be able to connect to somebody when they're in a very a space that you, you can't kind of immediately recognize I suppose um, and that was where I went because in terms of getting help from professionals it was absolutely hopeless and I just of course then I read and read and read <laughs> and then I ended up and of course I tested it and there, there was a particular MA thesis that I read as well. Somebody who'd done some researching, um, teaching carers how to respond in a person-centred way. Of course, I ended up feeling that I knew more than the people who were looking after her, which was not what I wanted to feel. If you've got a relative and you just go in and see them for an hour or two once a month, you won't know either. Mm. So, And that's when I think people could say, well, they've, they've gone, because nine times out of ten, if you did that, the person would be asleep. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 
I don't in any way think that it's easy for people or that like people are terrible if they you know don't go and visit people because as we were saying before you know relationships are fraught but there is for me sometimes a fear that you know I really support carers and people working in nursing homes um across the board um but there is a belief like with everything and we'll put we'll send these people send them somewhere and they're at these are the experts well they're not experts sorry but they are not yeah but the relatives often don't know what could be done the carers don't often know and the nurses don't know they are not nurse specialists and they should be the carers should be specially trained relatives need to find out as well because we were fortunate that we could afford to do that but when you think what what it would have been like otherwise, and even when you can get people in, you can't always find the people to get in to, yeah. to, to do it. But that's what was so great about having you come up. It made a difference. I had a physio who made a difference, the massage therapist who made a difference. I tried various activities, people, and they didn't make a difference. But some of the carers, I did manage to show them how to do activities with my mother and get enough time with my mother we had to pay extra for them to just spend time with her which I think is shocking one-to-one should be really available all the time because you don't know when the person with dementia is going to feel that they want to do something or when they don't want to do something yes it's true because otherwise um you can feel like right come on now here for this uh you know yeah especially if if people aren't able to be flexible and say okay well i'm up for say you know three or four hours and at some point and we'll be there over that time and it will you know within that time period something will happen if it's i think it's it's difficult when it's like right it's an hour i've turned up with my guitar and you're gonna damn well engage you know it's uh that doesn't tend to work very well so i do think some of it is about you know adjusting into that kind of something else is going to happen and what that thing is that's going to happen and I would always have a commentary going with my mother about what was happening what I was doing what was happening next what we were going to do what we had done um you know so that so that those things were as present as they could be if she wanted to listen Mm. so she didn't always sometimes she told me to shut up but then, at least you know you're connecting. Well, that was a very familiar thing, because you know, I've had yeah. a lifetime of telling me to shut up. I remember a, a friend of mine saying, you know, as a therapist, how someone will be like, oh my God, you know, this, you know you'll spend the time talking about something absolutely horrific. They'll come back a week later, won't even mention that, That's won't right. even give you a catch up with That's what right. happened, how they got through it, and yep. just talk completely about something else. And, yes. you know, that's not a normal relationship, um, is it? You know, because yep. if you were meeting a friend, you'd say, come on, don't tell me that. What happened with when we were talking about last week? Obviously, as a therapist, you can't do no, that. And exactly so there right. is that adjustment, which must be natural to you now. Yes. And also, I think, you know, with, with in the arts... Yeah. You're used to that. Yes. And I, well, I think the arts, uh, people in the arts would understand process more, wouldn't they? Yeah. And I think it is about process. Um, but I do think that not everybody has the temperament for it. And in a family, there may be nobody with the right temperament for it. Because I don't think everybody is cut out to be able to, to be a carer. Um, so I, I think if there are family members who, who really can't, manage any of that i wouldn't want them to feel that i think they ought to be exactly yeah i don't think everybody can 
Yeah. And I think sometimes the, the history is too much to overcome of the relationship. And I think it's just sometimes is too much of a challenge and people have to deal with it the way they have to deal with it. And they yeah. obviously have to then live with what they've done. I have no idea how I would, whether I'd be able to care for my mum or dad. Well, I think if you told me, I would, I would have said no chance. That I oh, could that's do interesting. It. I wouldn't have thought I could have done what I did. What I hope is, you know, there are more and more people in the earlier stages who are getting their voices out to express their experience. Yes. The fear is that then suddenly people disappear. I've had that. Oh, what happened to so-and-so? Oh, they're in a nursing home. You know, we yeah. need to be able to have people being able to express their experience and only through that can we get the change, I think. Well, I think as long as people who are living with dementia can express it, they, they are definitely people who, who need to be doing it. They need their own voice. There's a very good group called Your Voice Matters who are very um, prominent in the, the problems in care homes and nursing homes and particularly how relatives get bullied, which I was bullied definitely in the nursing home. Um, some get banned and I knew somebody get banned. Um, and they were banned because... They weren't happy with the level of care and they were right not to be happy. But rather than say, OK, we, we'll learn from this, we'll try and do it better, we'll make sure we've got more resources, they just say, you're a troublemaker, get out of here and, and you can't come and see your relative. So, I mean, luckily that never happened to me um, and I think it happens more to people who are not self-funding than it happens to self-funding people because they need the self-funders because they pay more. Of course, it's not sexy no if it was fluffy kittens if it was children i mean if you think about animals and children there would be uproar it would never happen yeah because it's older people older adults it it somehow doesn't get the attention that it deserves so there could be those programs on the television they show what's happening People can see it. Everyone says, no, it shouldn't be happening, and then nothing gets Well, I think by virtue of the fact there's a TV programme, people think other people are taking care of it, or that it's being sorted now. I've seen the programme. I've worked in too many places where there are people in corners scratching at walls and paying £800 a week to be doing that. Yes. Or more. Yeah. Yeah. They sell a fantasy... And I do think that the motivation of most people who go in as carers in those nursing homes is is sound. Yeah. And their hearts are in the right place, but they're not well trained. And also because the requirements of the job are not not necessarily particularly high and some of the complexity of particularly dementia, I think, requires an intelligent approach. And they're not always recruited for their abilities in the areas that they need to be recruited in. So they'll be kind people and they'll they'll know basic looking after skills, but they don't have an understanding of complex needs. You mentioned that Audrey, you sang the songs together, but also yes. that um, she enjoyed music. Was there any ever anything in the home that was uplifting in that way or what well, they provided I had my own playlist for Audrey which I've still got which were all the songs because she used to be a great one for singing and 
So I have a playlist, and they're, they're the songs from the shows that she loved. And I can remember one evening singing over and over and over again with her, Hey Big Spender. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it was brilliant. But there are a lot of songs that she liked. But what she hated was reminiscence. So you had to be a bit careful when you played them. Um, because sometimes she would be all right to a point and then she'd ask you to stop. But she didn't like being reminded of what she'd lost. So all this stuff in Holmes about reminiscence, she absolutely would have nothing to do with reminiscence. But music was very important and songs were important. How should we finish this, do you think? <laughs> it needs to change. <laughs> and connection is completely possible. <laughs> Education. That's the thing. I don't know what the answer is. I wish I did. So she did tell me that what I was doing was the right thing. That must have felt good. Yeah, it was a bit of a relief. <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave it there. Caroline Kit Kat and Audrey Kit Kat. Yes. Thanks very much. My pleasure. You have been listening to Talking Life podcast brought to you by Created Out of Mind at Welcome. Thanks to Caroline, Danuta Lipinska, Thea Stevenson at Welcome, Erlen Cooper and the Created Out of Mind team. And I also just want to acknowledge all the amazing work that's going on in care homes. There are brilliant care homes out there. So for more information about what it is that we do, check out the Created Out of Mind website, createdoutofmind.org. And to enjoy more podcasts, go and have a look at the website or download them on the podcast app. I'm Susanna Howard of arts and literature charity Living Words. Thank you for listening. If you liked it, please tell other people. Thanks. <laughs>